Welcome to the 67th AW Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled Positive Barbarism, Brutal Aesthetics in the Post-War Period, art historian Hal Foster explores the pervasive turn from the mid-1940s to the early 1960s to the Bru and the Brutalist, the Animal and the Creaturely, as these are manifest in the early work of Jean Dubuffet, Georges Bataille, Asger Jorn, Eduardo Paolozzi, and Klaus Oldenburg. In this fifth lecture, entitled Eduardo Paolozzi and His Hollow Gods, delivered at the National Gallery of Art on May 6, 2018, Foster discusses how Paolozzi found a path to post-war survival in industrial debris. Thank you all for coming. Uh, this is the fifth lecture of six, and uh, I run on longer than some TV shows. Um, not that that's saying much. So like Asger Jorn, my subject last week, Eduardo Polozzi emerged from World War II disabused about the humanist tradition in art. And his response was to perform a detournement of sculpture as brutal as the detournement of painting in Jorn. Pelosi assumed the destruction of the classical figure, but he also turned away from the perfect fragment advanced by Brancusi and others. Both models of sculpture, traditional and modernist, were broken. And the question was what to do with the pieces how to reassemble the figure in a way that would register its undoing in art and history alike. Dazzled by the Apollo torso in the Louvre of 1908, Rilke understood its message to be ethical as well as aesthetic. You must change your life. For Pelosi, after two world wars, that change had already come catastrophically, and one had to adapt to the new brutalities in order to survive at all. His figures of the 1950s, which are as creaturely as those of Jorn, are avatars of this survival, or such as my thesis for today. In the early 1950s, Pelosi was a key member of the independent group, or IG, a motley crew of artists, architects, curators, and critics forged in the crucible of post-war Britain, where the grim austerity was heightened by the colorful, colorful bounty of American consumerism on the horizon. Pelosi was active in the new brutalist wing of the IG, which included the artists Nigel Henderson, the architects Peter and Alison Smithson, and the critic Rainer Banham, among others. By the late 1980s, the Smithsons could look back on the as-found aesthetic of new brutalism as a confronting recognition of what the post-war world actually was like. In a society that had nothing, you reached for what there was, previously unthought of things, we were concerned with the seeing of materials for what they were, the woodness of wood, 
the sandiness of sand. With this came a distaste of the simulated, and it's all Peter Smithson. Implicitly, the Smithsons cast new brutalism as a materialist realism against the simulacral order of an emergent culture of American advertising. Yet the IG was also fascinated by this new world. And with its echo of the objet trouvé, its as-found aesthetic advanced its own version of image making too. In the case of new brutalism, however, the image was discovered within the process of making the work, whether that material be a building, a picture, or an object. Already in his 1955 definition of new brutalism, Banham had defined these two aims as, one, valuation of material as found, and two, memorability as an image. But he did not attend to the tension that existed between them even though it ran through most IG activities. Consider Parallel of Life and Art, the controversial exhibition curated by Pelosi, Henderson, and the Smithsons at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, or ICA, in fall 1953. Its disjunctive array of 122 diverse photographs, including aerial perspectives, microscopic specimens, x-rays, artworks, everyday events, and archival images, insisted equally and oppositely on both the physical actuality and the imagistic virtuality of the prints on view. Or take the contrast between the two IG exhibits and the famous This Is Tomorrow show at the Whitechapel Gallery in summer 1956. While the new brutalist Group two, which consisted of Pelosi, Henderson, and the Smithsons, presented patio and pavilion, a bare wood shed roofed with corrugated plastic and scattered with symbolic relics. It looked to Banham as though it were excavated after an atomic holocaust. The proto-pop group six, which consisted of Richard Hamilton, John McHale, and John Volker, contrived a frantic funhouse on the theme of the new sensorium produced by mass media culture. And that is Hamilton atop the ladder at center. Nonetheless, this tension between materiality and imageability was generative. Certainly it led new brutalist artists like Pelosi and Henderson to renew the old devices of collage and assemblage in the form of a rough practice of juxtaposition. Collage is my only method, remarked Pelosi, who extended it to the verbal melange of his poetry and prose. And the same was true of Henderson, especially in his screens clotted with images. The two friends were familiar with Dadaist and surrealist examples from London and Paris, where Pelosi lived from summer 1947 to autumn 1949. There, largely through Wynne Henderson, mother of Nigel, who ran the Peggy Guggenheim Gallery in London, they came into contact with central figures in both movements, such as Tristan Zara, Hans Arp, and Alberto Giacometti. That French approach, the need, the passion to consider and handle things at the same time is very necessary to me, Pelosi commented. 
again with Dada and surrealism in mind. The concern with different materials, disparate ideas, becomes almost a description of the creative act, to juggle with these things. Palazzi applied this juggling to his lectures and exhibitions as well. In April 1952, in the first meeting of the IG at the ICA, he presented an apedioscope projection without commentary of a slew of his own collages and tear sheets for mass media magazines that he called bunk. For some witnesses of this legendary event, which was a performance of collage in its own right, there was no order or link or logical thinking at all. While for others, the lateral connection of the images seemed self-evident. Parallel of Life and Art, which opened in September 1953, also met with a divided response. Some saw a spider's web of representations, while others found a poetic lyrical order where images create a series of cross relationships. Although his early collages of the mid-1940s recall such precedents as Hannah Hook, Raoul Hausmann, and Max Ernst, Pelosi did not merely rehearse Dadas and Surrealist versions of collage. Dadas and Surrealists were pledged to disturbance, public and political in the first instance, private and psychosexual in the second, whereas Pelosi sought an ambiguity of effect. With material drawn from war-damaged books purchased cheaply in London, he sometimes overlaid pictures of classical sculptures with cutouts of contemporary machines. He derived the sculptures from the 1911 textbook uh, and the machines from various manuals. At first, these collages also appear disruptive, but they are less about collision than superimposition. Frequently, Pelosi bores out the figure and replaces a human part with an engine part. Though the body is thereby defaced, it is also refaced in such a way that derangement cedes to rearrangement. Through imagistic and spatial dislocations, most Dada's collage, such as Tatlin at Home by Hausmann, aim to revolutionize representation hence the only semi-ironic homage to the Russian constructivist hero. Again, for Pelosi, that modernity had already arrived in distorted form, and his collages probe that condition, as if to query whether the post-war subject can still be modeled on the machine at all, as the new man of modern, modernism so often was, when that modeling had proved to be so disastrous. Certainly, to substitute a cross-section of a mechanism for a classical head of Zeus or Demeter, as Pelosi does in collages dated to 1946, is to travesty the modernist cult of machinic gods. At the same time, the question of what might count as heroic or sovereign, an important one for Pelosi, is already posed. The relation of Pelosi to the purest montage of Amadee Ozenfall and Le Cabusier is more complicated still. The young Pelosi regarded Ozenfall as a guru, and foundations of modern art, of 
1928, was a key text in his formation. In fact, Pelosi wanted his early scrapbooks to relive aux enfants in this regard, even though like other purist publications, Foundations juxtaposes images of the ancient and the modern and the primitive and the futuristic in a manner that often appears problematic to us today. Of course, the purists participated in the return to order after World War I. In this backlash against the avant-garde, aux enfants and Luc Cabousier offered an aesthetic remedy of a cubism rectified through architectural geometries of plan and projection. They also aimed to classicize the machine and to mechanize the classical. Hence the comparisons in towards the new architecture of contemporary products like a Delage sports car with classical structures like the Parthenon. For Pelosi, after World War II, the esprit nouveau of the purists was hardly new, and his crossing of the human and the machinic had no remedial purpose. The problem was not to humanize the machine, that too could only be counted a failed project, but to cope with an already mechanized world that was further wrecked by yet another industrial war. At issue is the difference between the first machine age in the 1920s, to which the Dadas and the purists reacted oppositely, and the second machine age of the 1950s, which Pelosi addressed along with his IG colleagues, that is the difference between a period already transformed by mechanical reproduction and transportation, and one about to be changed by electronic imaging and information. In effect, the second machine age pushed the first into the past in a way that could be represented, perhaps hyperbolically, in terms of ancient history, with the machinic imaged as a classical ruin, as Pelosi did in his Zeus and Demeter, or even in terms of natural history, with the machinic cast as a petrified landscape, as he did in other early collages. This is a precocious instance of a trope that has become familiar only lately. Modernity presented paradoxically as antiquity, almost as archeology, span even as paleontology. Okay, this next section is called Icons of Survival. As he had done with collage, the young Pelosi work through key precursors in sculpture. Like others in his generation, he was especially drawn to Picasso, as is evident here, and Giacometti, as is evident here. By the early 1950s, however, this period of emulation was over. At this time, Pelosi was at work on small heads cast in bronze. A characteristic example, man looking upwards, bandaged head, is a bust turned to the right and tilted back to the sky, with only a depression for an eye and a protuberance for a nose to signal a face at all. The patches forming the head also represent the bandages covering it. Already we see, begin to see his distinctive doubling of subject matter by sculptural process. And only the title indicates that there might be human life here not an immaculate newborn 
of Brancusi, which it might otherwise resemble, bandaged head suggests a survivor, blinded, burned, or otherwise battered, all senses blocked. Over the next years, Pelosi produced little figures in bronze too. Cast in the backyard of the homestead uh, home of, the, of ICA director Dorothy Moreland, these homunculi have blobby heads and stubby arms. And though a few gesture emphatically, it is not clear what they communicate, perhaps only the inability to communicate. The consuming interest of Pelosi is with the physiological and psychological limits of man. Lawrence Alloway, IG convener, curator, and critic wrote, think astutely, of such figures. These limits have been widened lately with concentration camps, exposure at sea, the pressure of minus 45 gravities. It is to find an image of man tough enough and generalized enough to stand up to this environment that Pelosi is working. With its childish evocation of an ancient charioteer, man and motor car suggests one emergent strategy, survival through archaism. In order to persist, mimic a relic or a ruin. Man under stress was a central concern of the IG at large, especially of the new brutalist wing. And Pelosi explored the theme in his early collages and sculptures alike. For instance, one of his bunk images, Wind Tunnel Test, shows a sequence of six US Navy photographs of a test subject under increased gravitational pressure. All Pelosi did was to move the final three photos in which the man is under extreme force above the first three that show him in the initial stages of the test as if to suggest that stress was the normative state of the modern subject. Then there is Mr. Cruikshank, which was based on a head devised at MIT to measure the effects of x-rays on the cranium. Unlike the wind tunnel subject, Mr. Cruikshank, and the Dickensian name was randomly chosen, presents a placid face to a scientific assault but then this head is only nominally human. Its incised eyes might call up ancient bus. It's almost as if the android had already become the new classic. In such pieces, the theme of man under duress, even in mutation, is explicit, perhaps too much so. By the mid-1950s, however, Pelosi had found ways to integrate his subject of survival into the making of his work. For instance, to produce Shattered Head, he first modeled the bust in clay and cast it in wax, then dropped it on the floor. Next, he patched the pieces together, like so many shards of an ancient sculpture, and finally cast the fractured shell in bronze. In such sculptures, is not only a tension between fragment and whole, component and composition, but also an analogy between head and bomb, body and shell. Plutzi clinched this convergence of theme and process in his next series of heads and figures, 
which also featured a technique that allowed him to expand the size of his sculptures. I began with clay rolled out on a table, he explained. Into the clay, I pressed pieces of metal, toys, and the like. I also sometimes scored the clay. From there, I proceeded in one of two ways. Either I would pour directly onto the clay to get a sheet, or I would put plaster onto the clay. With the plaster, I then had a positive and negative form on which to pour the wax. The wax sheets were pressed around the forms, cut up, and added to forms or turned into shapes on their own. In effect, Pelosi updated the ancient method of lost wax casting in a way that circumvented the usual approaches to sculpture, or rather that combined in contradictory fashion the traditional modeled figure and the avant-garde found object. For he used ambiguous traces of ready-made fragments to compose misshapen creatures that partake of both the organic and the mechanical, but lack the coherence of either the body or the machine. In 1958, Pelosi offered a list of materials impressed in his molds. Dismembered lock, Troy fro toy frog, rubber dragon, assorted wheels and electrical parts, clock parts, broken comb, bent fork, various unidentified found objects, parts of a radio, old RAF bombsite, shaped pieces of wood, natural objects such as pieces of bark, gramophone parts, model autom automobiles, reject die castings from factory tip sites, car wrecking yards as hunting grounds. And he summed up his action on this rubbish, which significantly ranged from remnants of the military industrial past to fragments from the consumer's present in a manner, manner that mimics linguistically what he performed sculpturally. Burn, cut, mold, model, construct, tack, destroy, and recombine. The word collage is inadequate as a description, Pelosi remarked of this way of working, because the concept should include damage, erase, destroy, deface, and transform. In such descriptions lies his innovation in modernist object making, as well as his affinity with other artists in my lectures. To adapt the practice of collage to the tradition of the figure, and thereby to alter both. More, to conceive a form of artistic construction that keeps faith with the fact of historical destruction. Not only the ideological ruin of humanist conceptions of man and sculpture, but also the actual devastation wrought by the World War, the Holocaust, and the bomb. Pelosi delivered his comments on material and method in a talk on the metamorphosis of rubbish at the ICA in London, again, in April 1958, which alludes to the 37 sculptures that he would show at the Hanover Gallery at the end of the year. It's also in London. 
Both heads and figures in this large group appear damaged. But whereas the heads seem almost obdurate, the figures look fragile. With stilts for legs, they do not stand so much as they are stuck, feetless on thin plinths. Most are also armless, so gesture is still stunted. And if they possess genitals at all, they are only craggy boards or little cogs, so they appear sterile as well. Pelosi has never made a female figure, Alloway noted. Yet these creatures are not quite male either. Busted machines that are not even bachelors, they appear nearly degendered, with degendering here a sign of a general denaturing. And again, they are assembled from traces of the world, broken toys and tools, loose nuts and washers that are imprinted on the sculptures almost as the sculptures. Hollow and brittle, the sculptures thus develop outside in, not inside out. As a result, the exteriors do not express any interior as is usual with traditional sculpture. In fact, they do not seem to express any interiority, any subjectivity at all. They have no inwardness, Walter Benjamin would say, and that is what makes them barbaric. So what kind of subject do they intimate? At the time, Gestalt psychology, which is concerned with how the mind unifies discrepant stimuli, the whole is other than the sum of its parts, is famous motto. At this time, Gestalt uh, psychology was a central topic among IG members. In his important essay titled Expendable Icon, which appeared in uh, early 1959, only two months after the Hanover show of these sculptures by Pelosi, the artist critic John McHale alludes to Rudolf Arnheim, who first applied Gestalt theory to art, and cites the Austrian psychologist Paul Schilder on the fragmentary associations that we fold into our body images. Similar reflections on the infantile development of the corporeal imago were made by Jacques Lacan. At one point in his celebrated paper on the mirror stage of 1949, Lacan likens the achieved ego to a stadium and even a fortress. And in his 1958 lecture, Pelosi also refers to an architectural anatomy that guided the making of his figures, whereby legs are likened to columns, torsos to towers, and so on. Yet he envisions these parts as both petrified and cracked, even shattered. Unlike the infant in the mirror stage, no coherent body ego is posited. On the contrary. Moreover, the, the damage undergone by these figures extends to the senses as well. If eyes, ears, and mouths appear at all, they are represented as broken wheels and the like. Touch, long deemed the most primitive of the senses, is privileged, and the sheer tactility of the sculptures affects our viewing. Yet even as we are tempted to read these sculptures with our fingers, the roughness also repels us. 
Apparently, Pelosi identified with his pieces, especially on this score. Certainly, he played up a persona that was lumpen and brutish. In the 1955 film Together, he delighted in his role as a deaf mute. Why then did Pelosi give heroic titles to many of these sculptures? They include terms like warrior, king, god. Although these personages hardly appear triumphal or sovereign, not all the titles are ironic or satirical. In, in fact, Pelosi named several pieces after characters in Greek myth, with an emphasis on the defeated and the doomed. He represented the giant Cyclops twice, once as a head with a flattened face, and once as a figure whose one eye blinded by. Odysseus is again depicted as a broken wheel. With Cyclops, the reduction of the senses is thematic as well. The Hanover Gallery show also included two versions of Icarus, the mythical incarnation of hubris. Given wings by his father, the artful Daedalus, the boy flew too close to the sun, whereupon the wax in his feathers melted and he plunged to his death. In his revision of the story, Pelosi burdens Icarus with a large head in the first version and with massive legs in the second. While in both pieces, the daedal wings are mere stubs. According to Pelosi, either Icarus never flew, never transcended the materiality of body, earth, and sculpture, or he had always already crashed. And here again, Pelosi reinforces his theme with his process. Like Odysseus, he gouges his Cyclops. And like the sun, he strips his Icarus down. In a sense, Icarus is the original lost wax figure. Yet the legendary figure that uh, obsessed Pelosi during this time was a Christian, San Sebastian, whom he represented in no less than five sculptures. A Roman soldier martyred for his faith, Sebastian was a favorite subject in the Italian Renaissance because as a pagan convert, he provided an occasion for the ideal body of classical art to be repositioned in a dramatic scene of Christian sacrifice. Traditionally, Sebastian is depicted as riddled with arrows, as you know. And Pelosi also shoots his saint through with holes. In a paradoxical way, they alone hold his various versions together. Of course, Sebastian withstood his wounds, which is why his image was often taken up as a talisman of protection, especially against plague. My Saint Sebastian was a sort of God I made out of my own necessity, Pelosi remarked enigmatically. And perhaps this necessity also involved a safeguard. Maybe this is what he, he deemed heroic about all his figures, classical, Christian, and other. Damaged to the point of death, they survive or at the very least, they persist as the stuff of legend. 
if both man and sculpture were in a precarious state in the post-war period, perhaps this damaged condition could be troped as a form of protection, or again, of persistence. The figure is a thing, Pelosi stated, again, enigmatically, of such pieces. Could it be, paradoxically, that they are built to last precisely because they are as rickety as they are reified, not in spite of this fact? Soon after World War I, Georg Lukács argued that the industrial processes of fragmentation and reification had penetrated objects and subjects alike. In the wake of World War II, Pelosi sees fragmentation and reification at work in the world at large. At the same time, he moves to recoup them in his sculpture, or again, even as his sculpture. These figures can be taken as avatars of survival in another way too, if we understand the imprinting of the world on the sculptures as mimetic of a changed context of human evolution in the modern period. Pertinent here is the classical, classic text on growth and form of 1917 by the Scottish biologist Darcy Wentworth Thompson, which came as a revelation to Pelosi when he discovered the book in 1948. He soon passed it on to Richard Hamilton, who produced an extraordinary exhibition on the subject in 1951. For Thompson, biological forms are determined by forces that are not only internal, but also external. Often an apparent deformation within an organism is actually an adaptation to its environment. In this way, his celebrated graphs in On Growth and Form chart how new figures emerge from old figures as a biological form undergoes a more or less homogenous strain from the world. Strain, again, is a recurrent term in IG discourse. Clearly, this account fascinated Pelosi, even though he imagines such transformation very differently. In Thompson, metamorphosis tends to be mathematically consistent, which is obviously not the case with Pelosi. And unlike Thompson, Pelosi conjures up creatures in which the organic and the mechanical are convoluted. In fact, his uneasy animals distorted with techno motors are ciphers of this very complication. Another text also championed by Pelosi comes into play here. In Mechanization Takes Command of 1948, the Swiss architectural historian Siegfried Gideon designates the period between the two world wars as the time of full mechanization, the time when it, it, it impinged upon the very center of the human psyche through all the senses. And he offers an anonymous history of this impinging through case studies of such devices as the lock and the reaper and such procedures as the production of poultry and pork, which Gideon terms the mechanization of death. Gideon draws out two ramifications that are relevant to Pelosi. The first is that by the 19, 
century, the late 19th century, the repetition of objects permitted by mechanization led to a devaluation of symbols as craft became deskilled and ornament became rote. And the second is that by the early 20th century, mechanization had penetrated the subconscious with the implication that the psyche came to be understood as a mechanism, even an automatism in its own right. According to Gideon, modernists as diverse as the Kiriko, Duchamp, Picasso, Ernst, Clay, Leger, and Osenfant, all of whom were important to Pelosi, explored both this symbolic devaluation and that subconscious penetration. In his works of the 1950s, Pelosi effectively reads Thompson and Gideon through each other, which is to say that he presents the transformation of the human form under strain in terms of a mechanization that had taken command in society at large. This impinging on both body and psyche is his primary concern. To pursue this speculative line of thought further, Pelosi calls to mind another text that he likely did not read, Beyond the Pleasure Principle of 1920. In this controversial essay, which advanced the radical theory of the death drive, Freud puts forward the strange hypothesis that in order to survive, every, every organism evolves a protective shield out of the stimuli that it receives from the world. In his account, the shield develops as the surface of the organism hardens into a crust under the force of these stimuli. It is this crust that allows the organism to safeguard the ner nervous system at its core. Protection against stimuli, Freud insists, is an almost more important function for the living organism than reception of stimuli. Although this connection might seem forced, Alloway did not think so. His figures adapt to the environment by incorporation, he wrote of Pelosi. The texture on the sculptures of the 50s consists of a scrambled anthology of our essential artifacts. The body assimilates these objects like a wall. I noted that Pelosi associated his lost wax method with archaeology. Here the an analogy might extend to paleontology as well, as I also suggested. In fact, the Ur sculpture for this artist seems to be the fossil. Certainly his early reliefs point in that direction. Such a connection speaks to his concern with sculpture, not only as an indexical impression, but also as a temporal inscription. That is, with sculpture as a physical record of an order of time that surpasses the duration of human life, maybe human society. Beyond the Pleasure Principle proposes a dialectic of stimuli and shield, of reception and protection that sustains all organisms in the natural world. Yet this dynamic continues in second nature too, that is, in a modern environment transformed by industrial production and consumption. In fact, it is all the more intensive in this technological epoch. 
to the point where, as Gideon asserted, mechanization impinges on the very center of the human psyche. In fact, this dynamic can be understood to enter a new phase in the wake of World War II, during which period it becomes less a dialectic than a deadlock. It is as though the subject were not only fractured by shock, but also hardened all the way through. If any art can evoke such a condition, it is sculpture in which the figure is indeed a thing, in which the body is little more than a brittle shield built up under strain of literal impressions from a broken world, maybe with no inside at all, no nervous system at its core to protect. Pelosi pointed to this reading of his work when he described the head of his Saint Sebastian II as a dome, a shell, partly bent under pressure. At the same time, he presented the piece as an anti-mechanism. That is, he offered it up in symbolic resistance to a mechanization turned destructive. Perhaps he even intended his thingly sculpture to possess an apotropaic force. Could it be that Pelosi brutalized his figures in order to register not only the violence of this process, but also to recoup this violence as an impossible form of protection against it, which again is to tap into the talismanic aspect of traditional images of Saint Sebastian. Might this be the necessity to which his sculptures of the 1950s respond? As if in a perverse troping of Christ, what is dead cannot die. Or rather, in a paradoxical updating of Nietzsche, what kills you makes you strong. The sculptures of the 1950s suggest two other kinds of uneasy animals distorted with techno motors. The first more beastly, the second more robotic. The first group includes some pieces, such as frog eating a lizard and large frog, that evoke in nature that is red in the tooth, as well as others, such as monkey man, Chinese dog, and crocodile, that points to a monstrous condition that is neither human nor animal. Stuck on four stakes with a blob for a head and a log for a body, Chinese dog is less a foreign canine than an alien mutant transformed by nuclear disaster. The same is true of Monkey Man, an obscene figure stripped of most features, as well as Crocodile, 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 a misshapen head with a flattened face of mechanical imprints, all organs of sense cast shut. As the title implies, Crocodile might be taken as to image our reptile brain, a modern reversion to, to a primordial state. Certainly, in all these sculptures, Pelosi shows first and second natures to be utterly confused. For Pelosi, then, mid 20th century modernity had denatured the human subject in a creaturely way. And this holds for his robotic figures, too. In 1956, he produced a small bronze titled Robot, which might recall a classical Kuros that had suffered, suffered a deep sea change if it were not for its savage head. 
Thereafter, Pelosi develops a robotic association primarily in bus. Not only in Crocodile, where the creaturely con uh, connection is explicit, but also in AG5, a head that, along with the usual impressions of mechanical debris, is stamped with its title, as though it were a deformed android in an assembly line of the same. The word robot derives from the Czech robotnik or serf, first used by Carol Kipik in his 1920 play, RUR. The robot came to figure a panic fear about a world seen as dominated by machines and masses, or more precisely by the masses imagined as mindless machines operated by totalitarian rulers. And it flourished during the Cold War as a scare symbol of the communist version of this threat. Although Pelosi departs from this ideology, the robot is hardly a positive figure for him either. Far from a prosthetic enhancement of the human, as it was, say, for his contemporary Marshall McLuhan, the robot is a modern cyclops, a technological man stripped of sense as well as singularity. If you thought last week was grim, I should have warned you that this week would be grimmer. Um, the next section, the final one, is called God-making. Pelosi responded to other imperatives uh, in the art of the 1950s as well. Although many neo-avant-garde dismissed the figure as retrograde, the IG did not. Already in early 1954, Alloway led a seminar on the return of the human image in contemporary art, including new attitudes both toward man and toward the concept image produced by new factors, cinema, anthropology, archaeology, in contemporary life. Like others in the IG, such as Hamilton and McHale, Pelosi was not willing to cede the figure to popular culture without a fight. The best guide to this aspect of his thinking remains his 1958 lecture at the ICA, which was not only a gloss on his recent work, but also an overview of his aesthetic project to date. Significantly, Pelosi titled it Image Breaking, God Making. However, it was announced as the opposite, image-making, God-breaking. Apparently, and I think importantly, it worked both ways. In this talk, Pelosi presented his project as a plastic iconography, which he understood not in the conventional sense of the extension of past literary models into visual art, but rather as a double engagement with the image repertoires of popular culture and art history. His first aim was to compete with the celebrities and commodities celebrated in movies and magazines. Pelosi agreed with McHale that the icons of our time are to be found now more in the technological folk arts, the mass media. Hence his own emphasis, back to Pelosi now, on the construction of hellish monsters such as the aforementioned robots and beasts, which constituted the popular core of image making, according to Alloway, especially in the form of science fiction and horror offerings from Hollywood and Hammer Films. In 1958, a higher order of imagination exists 
in a science fiction pulp, Poesy asserted, does the modern artist consider this fact? As for horror, he goes on to say, the evolution of the cinema monster from Milius onwards is a necessary study for the fabricator of idols or gods. As is evident from his Icarus, Jason, and Sebastian, his second aim was to refashion traditional subjects of art history, a project Pelosi once described as historical images reinterpreted to modern requirements. To an extent, this was also to compete with popular culture, which had already appropriated some of this material for its own ends, not only in advertisement, but also in cinema. Plotsky pointed to all the films loosely based on Greek myths during this period. Like others in the IG, he did not dismiss this commercial production as mere kitsch. He sought not to bring high art low in a parodic critique, but to reposition high and low in a horizontal continuum. To borrow the title of a key 1959 essay by Alloway, this was the long front of culture on which Pelosi operated. That Pelosi, otherwise a poor speller, insisted on icon with a K was not accidental. The term was already in circulation among his IG colleagues as the expendable icon of McHale attests. Given that it yokes the transient and the typological, expendable icon is a near oxymoron. Yet McHale argued that the mass media image rates the iconic title to the extent that through repetition and persistence, it achieves immediate circulation and universal scale. Plotzi understood that this status was beyond his reach. Nevertheless, some of his iconic types overlap with the ones proposed by McHale. Like Pelosi, McHale pointed to the popular taste for robots, mutants, and mechanomorphs, which he too regarded as figures of man under stress with mechanical adaptation. As this last phrase suggests, McHale agreed with Pelosi that such anthropocentric icons might not only locate man in the modern world, but assist in his survival there. The whole range of the sensory spectrum has been extended, wrote McHale, who channels McLuhan. Such accelerated changes in the human condition require an array of symbolic images which will match up. Another aspect of iconicity interested Pelosi even more. A stronger term than image, icon evokes deep reference, deep reverence. After all, a believer, true believer, sees an icon not as a mere representation of Christ, but as a numinous connection to him. To be worthy of the name, an icon for Pelosi had to possess a touch of this aura. Such power was not only a personal necessity, but a cultural one as well. Early forms of society worshiped an image or a symbol which represented some dominant force, he remarked in 1965. And I see something related to this today. This last slide is as ambiguous as it is tentative. Did Pelosi project the symbolic power 
onto his own work, or did he locate it in popular culture at large, perhaps in forms that he might then tap? Certainly, Pelosi was not interested in the star icon, at least not in his sculptures, as were McHale and Hamilton, who operated, again, on the pop side of the IG. Again, rather than, than celebrities like Elvis and Marilyn, Pelosi evoked heroes, kings, and gods. In the 1960s, terms like council and bishop crop up in his titles, too. In short, for all this commitment to a cultural continuum of high and low art, he gravitated toward figures of sovereignty. Thus, his was a search for archetypes of authority as well as for icons of survival. As Pelosi announced in his 1958 lecture, image-breaking, the mimesis of a world shattered both actually and symbolically was only the first part of his project. More important was the second task, the complementary one of God-making. Occasionally in his notes and screen prints, Pelosi refers to a particular symbol of a dominant force, the dynamo, which is a generator that converts mechanical energy to electrical energy. This allusion calls to mind another salient text, the famous chapter in The Education of Henry Adams of 1906 titled The Dynamo and the Virgin, where the scion of the great American family tells of his epiphanic encounter with the massive generators on display at the Paris World Fair of 1900. He began to feel the 40-foot dynamos as a moral force, much as the early Christians felt the cross, Adams writes, in his third-person memoir. One began to pray to it. Inherited instinct taught the natural expression of man before silent and infinite force. Just as the dynamo was an updated cross for Adams, so was the virgin an animated dynamo. And in a similar fashion, Pelosi combines old and new figures of power in his icons. In fact, some of his aluminum idols of the 1960s, such as the Bishop of Kuban and Diana as an engine, number one, resembled dynamos recast and painted improbably as pop potentates and mod gods. Pelosi thus continued his iconic project after his shift in practice from lost wax bronzes to aluminum part assemblages. Yet the project remained a riddle to him, it's his word, and in many ways it was bound to fail from the start. How could a brown, bronze sculpture named for Jason, let alone an aluminum structure dedicated to Mars, be valid after the horrors of World War II? Moreover, how could an artist compete with mass culture at the level of iconic power? And finally, how could 20th century sovereignty be figured iconically at all, except perhaps as monstrous as Pelosi did often figure it? Certainly some of his personages are figures of force as well as objects of violence, 
Like Frankenstein's creature, they elicit both fear and pity. In their own ways, they too combine the sovereign and the beast. And in this doubling, they are as ambiguous as the sorcerer in Bataille or the timid proud one in Yorn that we saw over the last two weeks. Like some Yorn creatures, some Pelosi personages appear at once undead and excited. This association casts other attributes of his sculpture in a new light. On the one hand, several pieces evoke the most sovereign of monumental forms, imperial friezes, triumphal arches, Caesarly columns, sometimes with faux inscriptions included. On the other hand, they turn to mass culture as the vital source of imagery of domination. Once again, the effect is a montage temporality, both primordial and futuristic. His majesty as a sci-fi monster. Most monsters are made of found parts, as are these sculptures. It makes sense that in a 1960 interview, Pelosi refers to Giuseppe Arcimboldo, the Italian mannerist celebrated for his allegorical portraits composed of images of fruit, vegetables, shells, books, and tableware. Yet along with Arcimboldo, I think again of Abraham Boss, the French artist who devised the classic image of the sovereign as beast for the Leviathan of Thomas Hobbes. I've shown this to you before. Who or what figures sovereignty? It is an age-old problem. And Pelosi takes it up again and again, not only in sculpture, but also in collage. Almost in a mockery of the 19th century psychometrician Francis Galton, his time cover cut-ups aim to conjure up the generic face of power in his time. Is it captured by a Caribbean island dictator or a Russian foreign minister? An atomic scientist or an Olympic athlete? A titan of industry or a star of Hollywood? In the 1950s, Philosophers as diverse as Georges Bataille, Hannah Arendt, and Alexandre Kojève pointed to a pervasive crisis in political authority. Moreover, in the 1970s, Michel Foucault argued that power had long since retreated from figural representation into a regime of diffuse discipline and anonymous surveillance. Pelosi, I think, was aware of some of these difficulties. Along with the construction of hellish monsters, he once remarked, his occupation was the erection of hollow gods. Beyond a literal description, this hollow might point to the emptying out of the old symbolism of power. Consider the king, a tall figure with a monstrous head, porous trunk, and spindly, spindly crown that resembles an empty wastebasket. Might there be a modern echo here of the about-to-be-dethroned Richard II declaiming his sad stories of the death of kings within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court? His Majesty the Wheel is another boxy figure of a broken sovereignty, 
whose titular wheel both represents the crown and obliterates the face of the king. Split down the middle, this majesty is about to crack apart. One can assert that these old symbols of power could hardly survive in the modern age, that a hero, king, or god can only be viewed, ironically, as a Hercules out of work, as Baudelaire once put it. Or one can argue, along with Richard II, that sovereignty is always hollow, that since it is ontologically troubled, it is ever in crisis. As I noted last week with Yorn, this is the view advanced by recent theorists, such as Jacques Derrida and Giorgio Agamben, founded in a violent act of self-authorization. Power has no ultimate ground except violence. And when challenged, it cannot help but return there. Might Pelosi point to this condition, which can be as ridiculous as it is dangerous, in his grandiose structures of the early 1960s, such as tyrannical tower crowned with thorns of violence. That's that one. And twin towers of Sphinx, state one and two. How else are we to view these sculptures, which are part hieratic figure and part overblown architecture? There is a photo of tyrannical tower on the roof of a building near Parliament. You see Big Ben in the distance, which suggests that such figures still might haunt modern government. Titled as they are, these pieces intimate that, like sculpture, power cannot quite shake its ancient implication in sovereign violence, that the bureaucratic state continues such politics by secretive means. Now, this comparison is a double art historical error, pseudomorphic and anachronistic, but what the hell? <laughs> In his search for the iconic Polizzi and Friends, could be almost sentimental about the need for new fetishes and idols. The symmetry and grandeur of the structure make it look like a sentinel or a robot or an arch or a tomb, Alloway commented on behalf of the artist with his art Mars in mind. Yet at other times, Pulitzer regarded these sentinel tomb, uh, these sentinel tower tomb pieces as so much schizo-mechanico war kitsch. And the gizmo absurdity of the garishly painted ones does appear sardonic. In one obscure note, he refers to the facetious factor of the god king. Might Pelosi mock sovereignty here, as Alfred Jari did with his Père Ubu, or Ernst with his trash assemblages, or Sophie Tauber with her mechanistic marionettes. All so many paternal authorities banished to the nursery. The faux childish aspect of his semi-facetious sculptures is captured in a line that Pelosi repeats again like a riddle in his notes and screen prints. Toys as war god. Toys. I'm sorry, toys, toy as war god, god as toy.
tin crucifix, the king. If his iconic project seems ludicrous at times, almost a travesty, perhaps Pelosi intended it as such. Of course, though it is often ridiculous, power is also always dangerous, and we do learn to play act our way into roles of authority in childhood. At one point, Pelosi reimagines his parade of toys as one of political robots gone criminal. And Alloway likens some of his aluminum structures to war machines and torture instruments. In the early 1960s, the fascist dictators of World War II were not so far removed in time, and there were still totalitarian egocrats on the historical stage. Stalin died only in 1956, and Mao and others remained very present. If Pelosi was not settled on the question of power, uh, neither was his age, but then neither is ours too. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art production.